0: All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from the U.K. His name is James Fenwick, and he just wrote a book in December 2020 titled Stanley Kubrick Produces. And I've read part of that book, about half of it. Very fascinating aspect, a very influential, if not the most influential director out there. And Mr. Fenwick is a senior lecturer in media and communications at Sheffield Hallam University in Sheffield. And he has also written a book in 2018 titled Understanding Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey, Representation and Interpretation, and again, published July 2018. So Mr. Fenwick is going to talk about this earlier book Stanley Kubrick produces. So James Fenwick, are you there? I am. Awesome. Uh, Great to meet you, William. Great. Nice to meet you as well. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your name or your background, can you talk a little bit about your experience that led you to write this book, Stanley Kubrick Produces?
1: Uh, Sure, yeah. Um, Well, first off, I should say that I have been a fan of Kubrick uh, for many, many years, and that is how uh, I got into the the kind of uh, world of researching Kubrick, uh, if you will. Um, Way back, I can remember when I first saw a Kubrick film, I was about 12 years old. Um, I think it's a story that I do recount in... uh, my other book, Understanding Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey. I, uh, I was sat at home and I was watching on the TV this bizarre film with these kind of you know, men in monkey suits. And I couldn't work out what the hell it was about, and I thought, you know, I need to find out more about this. And at that time, it was about um, it must have been kind of you know, the early 2000s. There was a Stanley Kubrick website, the official website, and it was great because she could kind of you know find out about each of the films and. Uh, look at the posters and I just became absolutely uh, mesmerized by Kubrick and from there that kind of uh, really propelled uh, my academic journey so I went on to do uh, a master's by research where uh, I utilized the Stanley Kubrick archive which I'll talk about in more detail shortly but uh, the Stanley Kubrick archive based at the University of the Arts uh, London Um, and whilst I was conducting That research for the masters, it just kind of struck me that there was this gap in you know what we knew about Kubrick. People constantly researched, uh, you know, what his films meant, and I was just much more interested in you know Kubrick as uh, a filmmaker, as a producer, as someone grounded within the industrial uh, realities of Hollywood. And so from there, I went on to do a PhD, and uh, the rest is history, as as you will kind of uh, say. Um, and led to Stanley Kubrick producers, um, which is very much a book about the kind of uh, the industrial realities uh, of Kubrick's career and is grounded very much in archival uh, research now would it benefit perhaps if I just talked about the archive yes uh, for yes. listeners yeah. Yes
0: please
1: <laughs> so the archive so is based uh, in the University of the arts uh, London um, the archive is Kubrick's archive throughout his life. Um, he essentially, he was a bit of a hoarder. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. He he kept everything, or pretty much everything. Um, and he kept it in his home. Uh, he moved to the UK in the 1960s um, and kept everything in these boxes. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of boxes. I always liken it to the kind of final scene uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, uh, where the, the CIA go underground in this mass kind of warehouse filled with all these boxes. Well, the Kubrick archive is exactly like that. Um, and you never know what you 're going to find, and it 's just a fascinating resource um, and so yeah that, that really is kind of a central uh, kind of resource to my own academic uh, research. What I am kind of intrigued by is why he kind of you know Kubrick kept this in the first place he was a really private individual. Um, and it's kind of always fascinated with the fact that because he was so private, he kind of guarded, you know, really kind of guarded his secrecy and his privacy. He wants to kind of protect uh, his family and his own reputation. And so for this archive to have been donated to a university, it's publicly available. Anyone can book uh, an appointment and go in and view, you know, whatever material they want to look at. Um, it just strikes me as odd. Why did this happen? Why did Kubrick keep, kind of Kubrick keep all of this material? What did he kind of intend to do with it? Um, Did he kind of expect someone like me to come along 20 years later to go through it and, you know, find the good stuff and the bad stuff about him that's contained in the archive. Um, So yeah, those kind of questions started to really intrigue me and it gets to kind of the heart of what this book is about. Uh, So Stanley Kubrick produces the introduction begins with this idea of Kubrick wanted power and control in his career, that they were central to who he was as a filmmaker kind of central, um, to his entire kind of philosophy, to his own kind of, you know, entire uh, artistic life, to his entire kind of business life, it was having control and information. And so I see the archive as being like that, because it is this site of control and information. He had kind of uh, letters coming in, contracts, business reports, often stuff that he did not really need to know about, but it provided him with this information that he could then make decisions, okay? He could then spot failures that might occur and he could then intervene. So I almost kind of see it as uh, the archive is an embodiment almost of Kubrick's entire lifestyle, his entire kind of uh, you know, way of just being, you know, it's kind of the embodiment of Kubrick in many uh, respects. So within the archive I should also just mention the kinds of things that are in there because I, as I say anyone can go in and I have at times seen Kubrick fans go into the archive and are utterly disappointed. I think they expect to find kind of, you know, Jack's axe or something from The Shining. And when they go in and they find that the box that they're looking at is just filled with receipts and invoices and, you know, indecipherable uh, handwriting. Because Kubrick's handwriting, it's famously, you know, you can't read it. Um, so, yeah, the, within the archive is you know, kind of production documents, letters. Um, and business reports, as I said, financial reports, often stuff that makes no sense, kind of random pieces of paper that Kubrick or somebody else within his uh, production staff would have just written something down and you have no idea what he's referring to. So it is quite difficult to understand it at times. Um, I've been using the archive uh, for over 10 years now. So it's provided me with this insight into the archive. I know where kind of stuff is generally. Um, and because I've kind of been in the archive for that long, I've really got a good sense of uh, Kubrick's entire career, basically. Uh, the way that uh, he kind of evolved throughout his career uh, as well.
0: Um, I mean, that's what's fascinating about it, is you have so many details from his kind of early years and aspects that really, I to my knowledge, I had not seen before some of the productions that they never made. And you even used the word overproduced in your book. Can you talk about kind of his early years and how that archive gives that insight into how he began on his uh, Steam career?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, when you kind of start looking at the the, the material from that early period, so Kubrick uh, entered filmmaking. He probably entered filmmaking in the late 1940s. It was part of this kind of... Um, culture in New York of kind of bohemians and other artists that clearly had ambitions to become, uh, filmmakers. They wanted to join Hollywood. They didn't want to kind of uh, make films in opposition to Hollywood. They wanted to become the mainstream because they thought that they could make films better uh, than the kind of films that they were watching at that time. So Kirby clearly had kind of, uh, ambitions. He thought he was someone that was really kind of, uh, better in many respects than other people out there and there is a tad kind of uh, you know this kind of tendency of arrogance at times that comes a, kind of across uh, you know someone that's very young and kind of a bit of an upstart and even kind of his contemporaries at that time try and warn him look just calm down you know don't try and upset people in hollywood you're gonna you know uh, fall foul and you'll never make it um but in that early period so from kind of 1950 through really to kind of 1955 Kubrick was always living on the breadline. He wanted to become a successful uh, filmmaker. Uh, And in making this kind of transition to become a filmmaker, he'd given up a really successful career as a photographer. He was getting paid a really uh, decent wage at what was then called Look magazine. He was a a photographer and Look magazine was essentially a a photojournalist kind of journal, if you will. I mean, he had a really uh, healthy wage, but he gave all that up. He quit because he had these, you know, as I say, ambitions to become uh, a filmmaker and to start pursuing uh, a range of different projects. Now, initially, he did kind of think that, you know, he could uh, adapt uh, literary classics. Ernest Hemingway, for instance, he tries to uh, purchase the rights to a range of different Hemingway uh, novels around about 1951. But um, the kind of the publisher realised that this guy had no money. It's just some guy from you know the Bronx. What's he going to do? He's, he's useless, and so they kind of ignored him. Um, and yeah, as I say, kind of uh, throughout his early career as well, is you can see that once Kubrick realises he you know he hasn't got the reputation to be able to adapt those literary classics, he turns to writing his own material. Now we never really think of Kubrick as someone that. Produces films that are original. He often does it from adaptations, but in that early period, we recently have discovered a range of—they're uh, not always scripts. Sometimes they're kind of treatments, random notes in uh, journals. Uh, but he was someone that was turning his hand to writing and experimenting. Now, I've suggested at times that he wasn't the best of writers, and there are others within uh, kind of Kubrick studies within the academic world that disagree with me. They think actually. These early kind of scripts, they demonstrate kind of Kubrick's uh, you know ability to write in many respects. I found them just very kind of crude at times. They were often uh, crime thrillers. There was um, a, a kind of a treatment called The Cop Killer. And it is very kind of pulp, uh, you know, pulp noir, film noir type uh, storyline. Um, often they would be um, set within New York. Kubrick was clearly kind of responding to the fact that he was living uh, in New York, he was living in Greenwich Village, he often was kind of having to to share people's flats, kind of you know, sleep on uh, other people's couches, and so he was responding to the environment that he was in uh, at that time, um, often also as well kind of writing these alter egos, and this is the other thing that we've come across, the fact that Kubrick uh, was kind of reflecting on the relationships that he was in, often writing about kind of jealousy, marriage, uh, affairs, um, very kind of at times um, very kind of controversial material there's some stuff in there that um, I've read, there's a, one particular uh, story, it was called Jealousy really kind of well developed uh, and it features scenes of domestic violence that are akin to The Shining the way that you know, Jack and Wendy uh, in that film interact so yeah the archive is filled with uh, many kind of ideas that were never adapted, never produced um,
0: and kind well, of I I think you can see in your book, like his idea of controversy was very prevalent in those archives from the beginning, even before Lolita or some of these other, like he had a, he was intentionally trying to have controversial subjects for their, you know, for what they do to the public, public's interest. Right. Do you agree with that? I think controversy
1: um, again, actually, because I said that kind of control and information was central to Kubrick controversy was central as well. Um, quite often purposely instigating uh, controversial situations uh, as a way to further his own career. Um, so there's two kind of ways that we can look at this, this idea of controversy with Kubrick and what we can find in the archive. One is through self-promotion, where he would controversially write himself into kind of uh, positions of power and, and being you know, the, the central artist. So he did this, for instance, on a production uh, called Mr. Lincoln, which was a, a television series, uh, and he tried to make out that he had kind of more input on that particular uh, series than he actually did. And this led to him being dismissed uh, from that production. So that's kind of one way that he does it, this kind of idea of self-promotion, uh, which is something I might come back to actually in a minute, because there's recent revelations that we've discovered as well uh, about that. Um, but also in terms of controversy, there's this idea of how he would purposely select material that he knew would kind of anger uh, kind of uh, censorship bodies around the world that might anger uh, kind of certain demographics and audiences. So something and I'm kind of skipping ahead here to to Paths of Glory. He knew that that film would go down kind of you know really negatively in Europe at that time. It was a film that was depicting the French military in not the best of lights. Okay, the kind of uh, the French military, or uh, more kind of specifically, uh, the the higher kind of commands within the French military are portrayed as being very kind of. Uh, ruthless and not really caring. And Charles de Gaulle, uh, president of France at that time, really did not like the film and threatened to ban it if United Artists would release it there. Kubrick immediately sensed that this was an opportunity and was begging United Artists to release it because he could think of nothing better than Charles de Gaulle trying to ban the film of having people kind of outside uh, cinemas protesting it. For him, that was exactly what he needed uh, to further his own reputation and to kind of, you know, get interest in his films. So, yeah, it's kind of those two aspects of controversy, um, and they remain throughout Kubrick's career as well. Sorry, you were going to ask something.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, like, other than their contrary, he comes out of New York City, this kind of avant-garde idea. So he's thinking about Hollywood in a, in a way, but he was also, I think your book shows that he was also very keen on commercial prospects of any projects as well. Can you talk a little bit about that, or kind of his early years?
1: Yeah, I mean, again um, with Kubrick, because I think sometimes we have this idea that um, he's always wanted to produce something that's perhaps a bit different, that's against the mainstream. But far from it, Kubrick was a businessman. He was someone. I mean, that's how he got into the kind of whole filmmaking business was that he thought he could make a profit if he made a short film and he could make a quick book. But his first few attempts of, of short films were kind of disastrous in terms of financial profit. He made nothing. <laughs> um, but in terms of the what we can see in the early years is that he was turning towards um, what he termed action material. He thought that action films. Now, by that, I don't necessarily mean kind of the fast and furious, how perhaps we define action films now. But certainly films that would um, be more mainstream, so kind of appealing to masculine audiences. As I say, kind of detective uh, films, film noirs, those kinds of projects, and I think we see that as well with the first films that he actually did uh, release his first feature films, such as *Killer's Case and *The Killing*. They are really kind of meant to be commercial films that will appeal to a, a you know a, a bigger audience, um, if you will. And as I say, kind of the the unmade stuff as well indicates that he really was interested in those kinds of um, ideas and those kinds of mainstream uh, projects. Uh, as uh well by the time he gets to kind of um making uh killer's kiss and uh the killing he has kind of displayed this tendency as well to tap into networks because that was really interesting well not interesting important for him so what i mean by that is he would kind of make contacts within uh within the industry he would make contacts kind of within uh, local kind of communities and basically extracts money from individuals to help fund his projects because Kubrick was somebody that was often having to privately finance his projects right up to 1955 so for a kind of a five-year period so he had no option but to kind of go to the mainstream if he was going to break through. Um, it, when he gets to 1955 though, Killer's Kiss, he sells that to um, United Artists And then he makes this connection with James B. Harris. And I think this is important because James B. Harris is someone that was also well-connected. He worked in the television industry as someone that was buying and distributing uh, films for television. And Harris was was loaded, absolutely rich because of his uh, line of work in the uh, television industry. And him and Kubrick kind of get together uh, and they start discussing what they want to do. And they both want to make films that are popular within Hollywood. And again, they kind of recognize this kind of um, common shared interest in crime thrillers. James B. Harris is really kind of interested uh, in the kind of pulp uh, fiction. And he goes into a, a bookstore in uh, New York, spots this book by Lionel White called Clean Break, and decides, you know what? This is a project that would have potential. Now, in terms of this, because I just want to kind of uh, finish this point about the mainstream, it's the fact that even though they think it's a mainstream project, United Artists disagree with the way that they decide to approach it in terms of it being a non-linear film. United Artists think that, you know, this project will fail because of the way it's been told, the way it's been edited together. Audiences are going to hate this film. And Harrison Kubrick decided to take a stand. United artists tell them, look, you need to kind of uh, re-edit this film into a much more kind of chronological audience order so that audiences can understand it. And Harrison Cooper not have in any of it. You know, they can stand the ground. We have to tell this story in this way because it's innovative, it's fresh, it's new. And we are the new blood of Hollywood. This leads to a, a bit of a dispute with United artists, unfortunately. Uh, and it was Max uh, Jungstein, uh, United artists, that because of this dispute, essentially decides that he's not going to bother promoting uh, the killing uh, and really kind of, um, you know, threatens its chances at the box office, essentially a bit of a disaster. But the film does break through on college campuses, and it starts to tap into a new kind of demographic that is em- kind of emerging that no longer perhaps is responding to kind of the, you know, the Hollywood films of Hollywood, it, but it's starting to respond to a new way of kind of, um or a new wave even, of filmmakers and films that are much more you know, controversial, edgier, have kind of uh, you know, fresh approaches to telling uh, kind of stories uh, on screen. So it taps into to kind of this uh, college network. And I think that is really important going forward uh, in Kubrick's career, essentially, because uh, kind of college uh, audiences, kind of university students really are central to later films, such as Doctor Strange of 2001, yeah, uh, A Space crazy. Odyssey.
0: Right, and that's how uh, he met up with Sterling Hayden, right? It was that original film. He ends up in uh, Strange Love. And there's some interesting characters that he was friends with. One was Shelby Foote, who uh, Americans know as the Civil War and the Civil War documentary. And then interesting, uh, it was James Adley Phillips, too. So some interesting people that uh, Americans know of. But, I mean, so... James you can,
1: Adley Phillips, He's James Adley Phillips, then he's a well-known figure then within the United States.
0: Well, just the, I mean, people who are, uh, know about the Kennedy situation, oh, they know God. the name Phillips, or if, at least people in my kind of group, I guess, um, but the, uh, that was kind of Harris was well off, there was the terms being used, boy, wonder, "Wonderkin," these type of things around Harris and, um, and Kubrick, but can you talk a little bit about how they used those terms to their own benefit and how Kubrick kind of. Asserted kind of cultural, like you talk about these networks, like cultural networks, how he asserted himself is producing. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I kind of mentioned before, um, so the networks thing, but also self-promotion. In fact, just to dwell, I'll come back to the networks specifically in a minute, but I think this point about self-promotion does link to networks and is probably important. And so in terms of self-promotion, what I mean is that Kubrick wanted his, his name to be prevalent with all the kind of things that he did. He wanted to take credit for everything, even if that meant that actually, you know what, he's taking credit for something that someone else has done. And that would cause a lot of controversy, as I mentioned, uh, throughout his career. And what this also meant was um, he had this confidence, essentially, out of nowhere to just contact random people, for instance, at the you know, New York Times or, or major kind of newspapers. And he would send them copy and say, look, I'm this guy that's making a new film, um, put this in the paper, and the, the journalists would, would, you know, verbatim put this copy into the paper, and it would start bigging up kind of Kubrick's career and Kubrick's reputation. Um, and so he, he himself would at times, you know, even put certain words into these uh, kind of uh, letters that we send sending to journalists to kind of big up his career and to big up his reputation. Um. And this also because there was a film called World Assembly of Youth. Now, this is a project that um, Kubrick has often been associated with, and it's often been seen as this kind of lost film. Um, And it all stems from the fact that there was an article in The New York Times in which one of these journalists stressed, oh, I've seen Kubrick's CV, he's made this film called World Assembly of Youth. And so for years, kind of Kubrick scholars have been obsessed, thinking, oh, there must be this lost film out there. But it's again an example of Kubrick just you know, self-promotion, bigging himself up and suggesting that he'd been involved in a film where kind of archival evidence actually suggests he probably had very little to do with it. It was just, just, again, him kind of riding off the back of other people's success and other people's reputation to further his own uh, reputation. In terms of kind of... Uh, Cultural networks, though he was drawing upon initially family networks and family kind of wealth or kind of family connections, particularly with films like uh, *Fear and Desire*, which was his first uh, film, and also with *Killer's uh, Kiss*. Okay, so those first two films, it was really kind of drawing upon uh, kind of family investment, um, and also what he would do, he would just uh it contacts certain companies so for instance a camera rental company and say look i'm making a feature film could you lend me some cameras Uh, i'll pay you in a bit once i've got the cash and then never does it (laughs) um so there's again an element of kind of cheek in what he's doing um but then it's also this fact that he starts trying to recognize that if he's going to break through into hollywood because he's having a real hard time of it, even once he's teamed up with james b harris um, is still not really having much success. What they recognize is that they have to access someone that's a major star that can, you know, really uh, help them and take them into the big time. And so what happens is, is um, it's late 1956, and Harris and Kubrick, Harris, and Kubrick himself at that point was at a real low because he thought, you know what, my career's over, the killing's been, you know, a commercial disaster. I have no idea what I'm going to do. And you can see that reflected in some of his personal diaries at the time. Um, And in one particular diary, I came across these notes where he's just writing Colonel Dax, and he just writes random names, kind of, um, I can't remember the names of the actors off the top of my head, but kind of big Hollywood actors at that time. I think at one point, James Mason, um, Kirk Douglas, obviously gets mentioned and there is all these kind of fantasy casting that you would want for his project, Paths of Glory now obviously kirk douglas eventually uh, is cast in the leading role of paths of glory Um, and kubrick and harris basically just decide to approach him they have no idea if he's going to agree to appear in this film but they just chance it they recognize that paths of glory might actually be a project that would chime with kirk douglas's own kind of liberal ideology and liberal values he was someone that was obviously kind of really uh, you know, interested in issues of freedom and those kinds of topics. And Passive Glory is exactly about that. And so they tap into this network of Kirk Douglas who responds, he wants to be in this picture, okay? Kirk Douglas thinks that Passive Glory could actually further his own career and kind of, you know, increase his respect as an actor. So this kind of tension that starts to play out between Harrison Kubrick and Kirk Douglas. They sign a, a deal in January 1957 uh, for a four-picture contract. It basically involves... Uh, Harrison Kubrick using Kurt Douglas for Paths of Glory. And after that, Kirk Douglas would then have Harrison Kubrick kind of locked into this contract and having to work for him, essentially for around about seven or eight years. And Harrison Kubrick wanted none of this. They signed this contract just to get hold of Kirk Douglas. And so what starts to kind of transpire is Harrison Kubrick used Kurt Douglas to further their own reputation, to kind of uh, utilize his uh, contacts in terms of promotion, to big themselves up again within the industry. But in the back of their mind, they have one kind of thing that they will do, which is they will ditch Kirk Douglas at the first opportunity because they don't want to work with him beyond uh, paths of glory. And so what plays out for kind of several years between 1957, when they signed this contract with Kirk Douglas, through to kind of, it's around about 1962. I've not got an exact date of when uh, the contractual relationship ends. But essentially, there's this constant tension between them of Douglas recognizing that these guys, they're just messing about. They've got no intention of working with me or producing another film beyond passive glory with me. And those two essentially kind of abusing, as I say, Kirk Douglas's uh, networks and, and kind of uh, friendships and contacts to their own end, furthering their own uh, career.
0: You know, I mean, you but- would you agree that that's kind of you see his negotiation in a producing role? Would you agree that Kubrick was very skilled in that? Because I saw a very clever kind of canny negotiator in this book.
1: Yeah, completely. He was someone that, yeah, he knew how to get a good deal <laughs> and drive a hard bargain. Um, that's what comes through strongly. Get think-
0: into a good deal, but also get out. So that's also yeah. like a very clever thing—is not knowing that you're going to get just like you said, get out of that. But yeah, pretty yeah. fascinating. Um, yeah, so that that was really their big thing was Kubrick, and how that that led to him directing Spartacus too, which uh, you know, and there's that element of control. Like you, you can see it in that chapter five, that he's bristling at that. They want to control him. You kind of see what's coming next. But can you talk about how he went from Paths of Glory, which is an excellent movie in my opinion? To Spartacus?
1: Okay, yeah. Um, so, from Pass of Glory through to Spartacus, it's a, a weird period um, filled with <laughs> many projects that might have got made, um, kind of stop starts, um, frustrations, and also at times just the, as I said, an existential threat to Kubrick's own career. So, one way of trying to get out of the contract with Kirk Douglas in May 1957. Harris and Kubrick threatened to dissolve what was known as Harris-Kubrick Pictures Corporation, the company that they'd formed together, this partnership. They saw that as being perhaps one way out of the Douglas contract. But potentially they could also have been, um, I think, perhaps more tension in the relationship between Harris and Kubrick. Kubrick didn't have any money. He was absolutely indebted to James B. Harris and was entirely reliant on his kind of finances, on his kind of networks uh, for his career and also for his kind of personal situation uh, as well. So between kind of Passive Glory, um, Kubrick tries to kind of develop projects that he's much more interested in. He starts really to develop uh, into perhaps the the director that we recognise, someone that becomes obsessed by a story. So, for instance, working with Shelby Foote on a potential project about the American Civil War and really kind of going for it in terms of research Uh, putting together kind of card indexes and researching day by day what happened in the American Civil War. So we start to kind of recognise these kind of traits of Kubrick that become a kind of central feature of his later career, Um, this obsessive kind of attention to detail, this obsessiveness in terms of uh, research and kind of, you know, the the obsessions in terms of subject content uh, of his films as well. At the same time, James B. Harris, he just goes on a spending spree. (laughs) He decides, right, we've no idea what we're going to do. We need some projects. Can we put together projects that can quickly get us out of this deal with Douglas? And so there are kind of evidence within the archive that he would go through periods of what I term overproduction, investing in projects that they know full well they can never produce. And they purchased the kind of um, filming rights to a whole range of different projects, um, kind of an Arthur C. Clarke novel at one point. Um, uh, Doctor Zhivago. Yeah, Deep Ranger. Um, All kinds of books. There's just tons and tons of others. As I say, with no probable kind of intention of producing these, but it was Jimmy B. Harris, kind of with his producing heart, recognizing that if they were going to become major players, they have to start getting into this game of overproduction. And it's also because of the fact that they are a very kind of precarious company, a company that could fall apart at any minute. And so the kind of conditions of making an independent project at that point in time in Hollywood, it really depended on producers like Kubrick and like Harris putting together a package, getting a script, um, often a script that was based on a, a kind of a literary property, something that was kind of a you know a bestseller that already had a pre-sold audience. Um, they had to get together kind of a, a, a producer and a director, which would obviously be uh, Kubrick and Harris, and they had to have a cast. And then they would have to pitch that to a studio in the hope of getting funding. And that meant that they had to have multiple projects on the go at any one time to be able to pitch them to studios. And then if the kind of, you know studio said, yeah, we like that project, they could go with it. And that would mean that all the other projects would collapse. So I think sometimes, because with Kubrick, there is this kind of... Um, an obsession with, well, not an obsession, perhaps that's n- not the right word, but certainly a, an interest within the media, within kind of Kubrick fans for his lost projects. And I think perhaps they don't recognise that a lot of these projects were never going to get made. Stuff like the German Lieutenant, for instance, which would have been a um, a project about, uh, well, essentially World War II from the German perspective, initially called Nazi paratroopers, perhaps not the most mainstream of uh, film titles, um again, it's a project I don't think he probably really was ever serious about because I, I don't think there's any chance of it ever getting financing. Um, and there's many other projects like it as well. We know that he wanted to produce a film um, about kind of, uh, kind of marital affairs and so on as well. And again, I don't think that would have got produced because of the kind of the climate of, of censorship at that time and the way that he was approaching it with very kind of explicit uh, sex scenes There was also, and this is the thing where I think it gets interesting and very controversial. There was an interest at that time between 1958 and 1960 in projects about child abuse, uh, kind of uh, paedophilia, all those kinds of topics that foreshadow Lolita in 1962, obviously. And because of this interest, it starts to put Kirk Douglas off the pair. Now, was it a genuine interest did kind of Kubrick and Harris you know really have a desire to produce a project about these topics, probably, but at the same time, I just wonder, were they purposely trying to explore these projects um, such as the to put Kirk Douglas off because he was he just saw it as uh, pornography, as did many other major kind of uh, stars and wanted nothing to do with it. as soon as those kind of books came up, they just kind of you know kind of took a step back and said, "Get away from us we're not being associated with that." Um, I think it's also it's just really interesting that the both of them were looking at those kinds of, of books that did deal right. with those kinds. Yeah, of Yeah, uh, Henry, Henry Miller was on
0: that list. Yeah. Henry Miller, Laughter in the Dark. So that controversy is clearly courting that controversy.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and those. I mean, I think Lolita's still still controversial. And I mean, it's interesting to see that, like you're talking about all the behind the scenes producing stuff. He was working with Brando, One-eyed Jack. So. There's a lot. The Cross of Iron, I think, it ended up being produced by... Um, oh, gosh, what's his name?
1: Well, Sam Peckinpah eventually Sam Peckinpah, I, um, right. yeah, directed it. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that it's, it's kind of in uh, Kubrick's kind of purview, yeah.
0: Um, well, uh, James, we are at about 40 minutes. Do you have anything... I mean, it's an excellent book, a fascinating book for me, just because I know a lot about Kubrick. This kind of flushed out so much of the early stuff that I wasn't familiar with, but you can see in those early... Things, what's going to happen in the future is skill at negotiating, producing. But you also, maybe you could just also address. You actually make the argument that his skill at producing was an impediment to his artistic career. Can you talk a little bit about that before we wrap it up?
1: Yeah, I'll try not spoil the ending of the book, but um, <laughs> essentially this idea. Um, I think I t- phrase it as the rise and fall of Stanley Kubrick, which was me being a bit naughty and trying, <laughs> perhaps you know, being a bit controversial. Um, myself but um, this idea that as I said kind of from the very beginning of his career he was interested in control and information and it was throughout his entire career particularly in the 1960s we're not really discussing the 1960s but it's a crucial kind of uh, part of Kubrick's career where he's starting to get as much control as possible the reason I called this book Stanley Kubrick Producers is The vast majority of Kubrick's time was spent producing, not directing, whether negotiating, as we've suggested, whether kind of uh, trying to promote his films and the ongoing kind of promotion of his films, whether through kind of re-releases or kind of, you know, um, releasing to kind of uh, home video and so on in his later career. Kubrick was constantly producing and became fixated on absolute kind of minor details, on dubbing and all these other issues uh, as well. But I'm suggesting that... um, Particularly by the nineteen seventies as well, he's accrued so much power. The studios give him so much power that it starts to essentially impact on his ability to actually move a project out of development and into production. He can no longer do it. He can, you know, he's obsessed by kind of, you know, accruing ever more information. He has to have every available option to a particular question to hand. And that means that his kind of uh, production staff have to go out and research, provide all of this data, and then because there's just so much data, he's overwhelmed. He can't make a choice, um, and he, as I say, it kind of really does impact uh, between, between kind of the 1970s through to kind of uh, the end of his career. This kind of obsession for control and information, he can no longer actually actively produce, as I'm suggesting, which I know is a controversial statement, and perhaps some people would disagree with it. Um, I, I think the archive is the embodiment of that, though. I think the archive, as I said at the start, is massive, massive archive, hundreds and hundreds of boxes. It's the embodiment of control and information. It's the embodiment of Kubrick as a producer. And it's the reason he couldn't move a project out of development and into production. He just had to research everything and every possible outcome to the point that you know it it just took up all of his time
0: (laughs) right i think you wrote like there was nine films and then last 25 years only four films that's not really a a, a huge amount of output again the title of the book is stanley kubrick produces by james fenwick where can people find the book
1: it's um available in all good bookstores it's on amazon uh rutgers university press which is the publisher um so yeah
0: Fascinating book. Great interview, too. Fascinating interview. Learned so much about this interesting character, Stanley Kubrick. So, again, James Fenwick, title of the book is Stanley Kubrick Produces. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.